going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. So on this edition of the Going Deep podcast, we're going to get you set for a March break. We're not going to give you flight information or all-inclusive sunspots that you should hit up, but this is a time for me anyways where the binging and the streaming is real. So we're going to give you a couple series that you can go through as we get through the dog days of winter in this country and tap in to the people who made those series really really remarkable first off thank you so much for the feedback and for the consumption of our episode breaking down all things creed 3 not because of us but it became the biggest sports film at the box office of all time if you didn't hear that episode feel free to scroll down on the podcast version of Going Deep, and you'll find it and give it a listen. We talked to Tessa Thompson, Jonathan Majors, and Michael B. Jordan. Most importantly, show reviewed the film. We're going to go through and actually touch on a couple other pieces of sports work. First and foremost, Bill Russell Legend. It's streaming on Netflix right now. It actually includes narration from excerpts from Bill Russell's books himself. It also has some greats of the game talking about the great Bill Russell. Steph Curry, Chris Paul, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Jim Brown, Isaiah Thomas, Jason Tatum, on and on and on, all throughout the two-part documentary film. Big names pop up, but it's, it's really the legacy of Bill Russell that comes through the screen and in a way, smacks you in the face. This guy who's won back-to-back NCAA titles and a gold medal, plus the 11 championship titles in his 13-year career with the Boston Celtics. And so I wanted to talk to the award-winning director who brought us this piece of work, Sam Pollard, who you probably remember from his work, MLK, FBI, Road to Black Power. About one, why was... Bill Russell, a subject at this point that he wanted to document. The timing couldn't have been more necessary as we got this amazing eulogy of him in close proximity to his passing, but also his approach in terms of telling a story that we think we know, but after watching Bill Russell legend on Netflix, you realize you had no idea. Let's listen to and learn from Sam Pollard as we go deep on Bill Russell. Congrats on an amazing piece of work. Why was Bill Russell someone you wanted to document in the way that you did using some of his own uh, you know, words uh, to tell his story? Well, first of all, I got hired a couple of years ago by one of the executive producers, Ross Greenberg, along with his partners, Larry Gordon, Charlie Rosenwick, and Mike Richardson asked me if I would be interested in directing these films about Bill Russell. And as a young man being 13, 14, 15 in the 60s, 
I was very aware of Bill Russell. I was very aware of his competitive on-court, you know, games with Will Chamberlain. So when I was asked, it was like a no-brainer for me. Yes, it was immediate, yes. And then we were able to put together a team of archival producers and producers and editors and cinematographers to document the story. But the first thing was not only to find great archival material, but then to find who should we talk to? You know, who was around to talk to talk about Bill Russell in his playing days and his post-playing days? So our initial interview began in August of 2021 with the legendary Bob Cousy and Satch Sanders, who were both teammates of Bill up in Massachusetts. And then the list just grew. We went to Magic Johnson and Julius Irving and Bill Bradley, Isaiah Thomas, Larry Bird, Bill Walton. You know, there was a just phenomenal group of people, Steph Curry, to talk to about Bill Russell and what he meant to them as a basketball player and also as a man who was very active off the court. You know, he wasn't just a basketball player, a sports figure just who was just going to shut up and play. He had opinions, he had ideas. And in doing the research, we know he had these two memoirs where he talked a lot about many things, about his life as a basketball player, about growing up in Louisiana, about what it meant to be an African-American man. And we knew that those excerpts would be important to help tell the story. And one of my producers, Uman Atlas, was really intense about wanting us to really dig out these excerpts, which we did. And uh, as we started to put these excerpts in, in the rough cuts, you know, we realized they were adding another level of complexity to who Bill Russell was. And then in deciding who we want to have be Bill Russell, because he wasn't at a stage anymore where he could do these readings himself, Ross Greenberg suggested Jeffrey Wright, who he had worked with before on other documentaries. And uh, as soon as he said Jeffrey Wright, I said, this is right. This is the right person. And uh, Jeffrey came in, who happens to be a basketball fan who knew about Bill Russell. And I think, you know, quite honestly, if I do say so myself, Donovan, he did a great job. <laughs> I concur. Uh, it, it, I had to remind myself that this wasn't Bill Russell in the present day when he was writing these things, uh, doing the, the VOs. I love it because we have a one-way relationship with these icons where we only see them um, you know, on one side, but similar to your MLK FBI uh, doc, we got to see Bill Russell as a fully formed person with fears, with, with flaws. How important was it for you to humanize him greater than the person that we you know, have on the wall as a poster? Well, those phrases are exactly what I'm always looking for when I'm doing a documentary, be it about Dr. King or Arthur Ashe or Bill Russell. I'm trying to have people understand that these are complicated human beings who may be seen in one light, but there's other aspects to their personality and to their lives that makes them, like all of us, you know, com complicated and interesting. Sometimes it makes other people angry or, you know, or saying, well, I didn't really know he was, like, he was like that. You know, so it was just part of the job to me to always try to dig into and understand the nuances of a human being. And that's what makes Bill Russell so interesting. I mean, for example, when he's talking about getting getting near the end of his career as a Celtic, he didn't feel the same kind of passion and energy to play the game anymore. That's when he knew he had to retire. Or the other section of the film, after they beat the Los Angeles Lakers in Game 7 in 1969, how Bill Russell then just walks away from everything, 
walks away from the Celtics, walks away from Boston, walks away from his family, and gets into the Lamborghini and drives to Los Angeles. That's really complicated for a human being to do that, you know, which probably, you know, for some people it was like shock. For some people, obviously, in his family it was like anger, and, you know, confusion. But Bill Russell had to be his Bill Russell. And then his relationship with, with Walt Chamberlain was, which was very complex also. I mean, here they were warriors on the court. And then after the game seven, 1969, and Bill's feeling about what Walt, uh, what Wilt didn't do, the rupture in their relationship that lasted for quite a long time, you know, and it didn't seem if you, if you, if you, there's a section of the film where he's interviewed by Jane Kennedy and she's asking him if he thinks, if she, if he thinks that he will ever mend the relationship with Wilt and he doesn't seem to care if he does mend the relationship. That says a lot about this guy. He could hold a grudge. So it's always interesting to, to understand the levels of the layers of a human being. Well, you've helped us understand those levels and those layers. I love the fact that this body of work lives on uh, and is a piece of his legacy that we all can reference. Thank you so much for putting it together for us. And thank you so much for putting it in perspective with me here today. My pleasure, Donovan. Enjoy your day. So the next series that we're going to go deep on is Full Swing, also on Netflix. And it came out shortly after Breakpoint on the heels of people being really excited that Netflix was going to expand on the storytelling that we've seen from Drive to Survive, team up with Box to Box Films and give us some more stories like that about different sports. And I'm going to be honest, I was a little skeptical on what it would be like following golfers. I didn't know how much personality golfers had or what the drama would be like on the PGA Tour. Well, the fact that the PGA Tour was rivaled by the Live Tour at the time of filming is a subplot that is worth watching, but also the type of people they got. Not only did they get you know someone like Justin Thomas, a PGA Tour member, two-time major championship winner, uh, 2016-17 PGA Tour player of the year, they got players who I, I didn't know, but I grew to like, like Joel Dahman. The cameras follow the players everywhere, especially all four of golf's major championships, the Masters at Augusta National, the PGA Championship, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship, in addition to the Players' Championship in the FedEx Cup playoffs. But I enjoyed the series, and I recommend it because it gave viewers and people who aren't traditional golf fans like me a little insight in what those wins and losses mean both fiscally and emotionally let's talk to someone both in the series and on the tour let's listen and learn to joel Dahman himself as we go deep on full swing when you heard uh, first that uh, this crew was going to take on the sport of golf what were your first thoughts I was a little nervous probably for the whole process. Um, the sport of golf is a little dull at times. You could say it's pretty traditional, right? It's, it's the gentleman's game. Um, we're known as kind of being a little bit more stick in the mud. Probably uh, there's not a whole lot of emotion, a lot of fun out there. So I think we, um, I didn't really know kind of what the plan was or, you know, the whole background, but as it kind of progressed, you can saw where they're trying to go and they're trying to grow the game and they're trying to show that it's fun. And um you know, there's a lot of great personal personalities on the PJ Tour, and I think they did a pretty good job of showing that. Had you seen the Drive to Survive uh, series beforehand, and could you approximate what 
a golf version of that would be? Yeah, so I, I knew the concept of it. I didn't like binge watch it like a lot of people did, but I, I saw some episodes. I kind of knew what was going on. I knew that it made a global impact on F1, completely, you know, changed changed the viewership on that. So um, I knew the impact it had. I, I Golf is, I think, way bigger than F1 was at the time. So I think, um, I you know, trying to draw in non-golf fans is, is always, mm, excuse me, it's always difficult. It's always something that we've, tried to do in certain ways it's been going on a while so i hope that this draws in new fans um you know i i know that golf fans are going to love it because golf fans are golf junkies anyways right so but i think it'll be it'll be really fun for people to see that golfers are actually fun you can have fun doing this and there's more to us than just kind of the robotic walking down the fairway stuff golf can be somewhat uh, a lonely sport but being documented and having the level of crew around and giving up that access. What was that like for you when you're still trying to compete? Yeah, it was certainly different for me. I mean, not being a top 10 player in the world where I'm used to having cameras around all the time. Right. And, and being mic'd up and all this extra stuff. So for me, it was, it was a bit of an adjustment for sure. Just um, having more eyes on me, I would say, and just being more aware of my movements and things I'm saying uh, was a bit of an adjustment for sure. But uh I mean, I mean the, the camera crews did such a good job on it and, you know, they end up just kind of blending in and um, you really just kind of be yourself. You kind of forget really what's going on and you just kind of do your job and uh, you be who you are and um, let them take care of the rest. So there's one aspect of it, growing the game in terms of viewership and fans, but the other aspect is growing it, you know, fiscally in terms of return on investment for sponsors. What has that side of being part of a series like this been like? Yeah, I think it's going to be huge. I think that they're going to see, you know, obviously you're going to grow the fan base, but as sponsorships, I mean, the the amount of eyes that are going to be on this, and um, I think that this is going to show the players even in a better light and a more personal light, and um, I think that can only help and benefit sponsors in the game of golf as well, and especially with the PJ Tour. I know that Liv is a big rival coming up and kind of back and forth on that. I think this is only going to benefit the PJ Tour even more um, and the sponsorships as well. I think it's it's going to be a nice cohesive unit going forward and i think everyone's gonna love this have you been able to consume the the finished product yet i have watched my own show my own episode um is all that they're releasing to the players so i, I got to watch that yesterday and were, were the emotions nervous watching it apprehensive excited i was pretty apprehensive it's always awkward to kind of watch yourself in those situations um you know and you remember you know, they took so much footage that you don't know what's really going to be on there. Um, so I got to watch it and it turned out great. I was, there's, there's plenty of laughs, there's some tears, there's um, everything in between plenty of highlights, plenty of lowlights. And I think they got, you know, just a very good job of showing, you know, kind of my life, my wife, my caddy and our relationships. And, um, you know, I think it was overall, I think it's going to be very good. There's been much conversation about ways to grow the game um, and make it sustainable, you know, especially with, you know, live golf uh, being in the news cycle. Series like this, are there other aspects that you think, you know, the game of golf could be put in a good spot, different things you would do to grow it? Yeah, so I think um, kind of showing like the mini tour aspect of life or, or from college, how it what it takes to get to the PJ Tour. Everyone knows like there's a draft in other sports and there's the minor leagues and stuff. Well, there's minor leagues in the golf. So there's not a draft, obviously. You don't just get drafted to the PJ Tour. So I think showing PJ Tour Canada, um, you know, where I started playing, uh, the Corn Ferry Tour, uh, the mini tours around around the country, I think that that would be a very cool thing to show people like there's guys sleeping four to a room in hotel rooms and pinching pennies to try to get where we're at on tour. So and I was one of those guys, you know, not long ago. 
Um, so I think that whole aspect of it all would be very, very interesting. Well, Canadians are excited to see you in the series and uh, see you on tour this year. All the best. Thanks for this. Yeah, thank you, Donovan. Appreciate it. So thanks to Joel for his perspective. And it is an easy watch. Eight episodes, you breeze through it. You can binge that in a day and a half if you are as dedicated as I am. And we've seen these series from Netflix in the past. There is a new Drive to Survive out that rivals some of the previous ones, even though we know the outcome at the end of the year wasn't as up for grabs as it has been in previous seasons. The calculus for Netflix is clear. and Quite frankly, they're going even deeper with a series about quarterbacks starring Patrick Mahomes and Marcus Mariota and Kirk Cousins. But Full Swing's a bit different because Vox is also part of the production. This is split between Vox Media Studios and Box to Box Films. And so I actually wanted to catch up with Chad Mum, the executive producer for Vox, to find out what did this endeavor mean for a company like Vox and why did they want to play in this space? Chad Mung on full swing, on going deep. So, Chad, you have great personal and team success with a project working with Michelle Obama on Creators for Change, and then you're doing a project like Full Swing where you're documenting golfers trying to keep their PJ card. I wonder how you, both those projects balance you know, looking to explore the resilience that the humans often have. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the beauty of documentary is, you know, you get to you know, work with people and they let you into your into their lives in a way that, you know, you you really get to see kind of what it's like to walk in their shoes. And I think that the best kind of documentary stories and oftentimes the, the truth is stranger than fiction. And I think for this series in particular, you know, we couldn't have scripted this to be what it ended up being, you know, and, and a lot of times you just kind of have to show up and be there. And, and we were very fortunate to have the trust of a lot of these players that kind of led us into their lives into a really, un, in a very unprecedented way. And not just on the golf course, but off the golf course and some of their most kind of most intense moments, you know, of, of personal pressure, the highs, the lows, you know, and then you throw in, um, you know, the disruption that happened in the sport this year, you know, it created a lot of really interesting and changing dynamics that were kind of new and, in, and of the moment for the players themselves. And for us to be able to ride along and try to fade into the background as much as we can and, and just let, let it play out in front of the cameras, you know, that, that is classic documentary filmmaking. And that's what, you know, that's what I've been bringing to, you know, the projects that I've been producing, you know, since I've been doing this. And, and I think for this one in particular, you know, to, to be able to, to win the trust of these athletes to kind of be led into their lives, um, you know, it's just really special. And I hope people really love uh, what we made. The key and most important choice when making a documentary film is who to document, who to have as characters, something like Drive to Survive, it's somewhat self-evident. You have so many golfers. How did you narrow it down on who you wanted to spend time with and follow? So we started out, you know, just with, I, I'm a pretty big golf fan. I think that's not a that's not a private information. I'm I've been a fan of the sport my whole life and played it my whole life and followed it closely. And so, you know, I had my dream cast list when we first started. And 
you know, it was, we wanted to make sure that there was a mix of different players, you know, different personalities from the top players in the game to folks who are, you know, struggling to maybe keep their card or to find their way on the tour, or maybe are a rookie on the tour for the first time. And so, you know, once we got into it, we started meeting the players and building those relationships. You really got to see kind of the different personality types. And so I think we ended up with the cast that, you know, we couldn't have picked any better, you know, to, to, to represent just the full range of the sport and all the different kind of personalities within it, you know, from players who are super outspoken, super brash, kind of super alpha in their personalities to like players who are much more introspective, much more family driven and something everything in between, you know, and it was really fun to sit down with each player and meet them for the first time and got to get inside their head and then use that to kind of shape how are we going to follow you throughout the year? What events are we going to stop in? When are we going to come and, and, and catch up with you? And, you know, and we, I think we, we made the right choice with our cast. I think you get a full range of, of everybody and, and a bunch of different kinds of interesting stories. The secret sauce for me in these series is the beautiful B-roll and anecdotal sound, whether it's F1 or, or tennis, it's somewhat obvious and binary that you find an amount of time you're covering with golf talking about multiple days, you know, huge spaces. Literally, how did you approach documenting the players um, and having that bandwidth of, of footage to go through? It's funny, we started out uh, with a much bigger cruise than we actually ended the season with. And I think what we learned is, is you know, these golfers are used to having cameras around them all the time, but, you know, they also, th those cameras are live or, you know, they're the media that's going to publish something the next day. And, and you know, they, they can be guarded and protected, uh, you know, quite, by quite a bit, you know, compared to some other athletes. Um, and, and so we ended up shrinking down and trying to get as small as possible and, and, and really tiny teams where when we were showing up at people's houses, we weren't some giant movie crew. It just felt like, hey, we're going to fade into the background, let you live your life. You know, we're not there to produce anything. We're there to just observe if you're doing something that's important to you then it's important for us to follow. And then we'd show up at the big events. And of course, we'd have footage from all of the sources. So, you know, we were really lucky to work with all the broadcasters and all the governing bodies, whether it's the PGA Tour or all the majors to have access to the broadcast cameras. And, you know, we worked with this really cool company who was able to technically capture all that stuff for us. And so we can really show the kind of small, intimate verite scenes paired with the big, beautiful drone footage of these giant properties um, and, and to be able to kind of cover a sport that has, you know, hundreds of thousands of shots hit during the course of a tournament and, you know, hundreds of players all on different holes all at different times, you know, it was like a, it was a dance and a symphony. And, uh, you know, we, we get, got better at playing the orchestra by the end of it, for sure. And I think hopefully that comes through. Well, thank you, because it certainly does. Thank you for taking us uh, on that journey, allowing us to be a fly on the wall uh, as the sport evolves and these players uh, certainly evolve as well. Cheers. Thank you so much, Donovan. So we got even more streaming content that I think you'd find fascinating to consume. This next series is from Apple TV Plus. And we talked about in the past on this podcast that Apple is in the soccer business. They've got a landmark deal with the MLS and what that might look like in the future remains to be seen. So far, so good. But they are doing storytelling. Uh, around the beautiful game as well with a beautiful piece on some issues that maybe are a bit ugly. Super League, the war for football is that story that I think is worth watching. And there could very well be, as you'll hear, a part two or a part three to it. It's directed by Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Jeff Zimlis. You 
probably remember that name, the two Escobars, which for me is up there in the top four or five, 30 for 30s. Also is the person who brought you the line, Momentum Generation. He was one of the executive producers for the Emmy Award winning The Last Dance and OJ Made in America. This was also executive produced by the Emmy Award winning Connor Shell, name you may remember from his work at ESPN, brought us the 30 for 30 series along with Bill Simmons with pieces like The Last Dance and OJ Made in America that obviously uh, won awards. But Super League, the war for football certainly will be in some award consideration. But the fascinating thing about this is it's it's not just about sport. It's about our culture. In many ways, it's about our countries. But it also happened not that long ago. And quite frankly, the issues that are unpacked in the film are still happening to this day, which makes documenting them super challenging, but also super fascinating. Let's listen to and learn from Jeff Zimbalist as we go deep on Super League, the war for football. Well, Jeffrey, first, I want to start on the name, which we don't really think about, but it is intentional. Super League, the war for football. What, if anything, should we learn from the title and how you wanted to tell this story? You know, one of the underlying currents throughout the four hours is this question of, is football in an identity crisis? Um, it feels that um, fans, government bodies, businessmen are clinging to the working class roots, the mythology of uh, the people's game, and that that is a fundamental value that is worth fighting for. Indeed, president spoke out um, fans took to the streets in violent protest. Uh, the royal family got involved. The media industry exploded to argue that you can't attack those principles, that the meritocracy, the European pyramid is fundamental to what the sport represents, that anybody from any station of life can rise through the ranks to become one of the best in the world. And at the same time, there's this reluctant acceptance that it's become a entertainment business that um, capitalism has gotten its hands around the throat of football and that it's not going to let go. And those two things aren't fully compatible, are they? So there is this tug of war between social democracy and private interests. And the war for football is suggestive of um, those two forces clashing up against each other. You know, whether it's some of your previous work, like Two Escobars, or the work of, you know, the greater group that brought us this, OJ Made in America, The Last Dance, they're stories, but they're really pictures on humans and what they're motivated by. I wonder if this piece of work is in a similar fashion examining what motivates us as individuals. A hundred percent. That's what I'm so interested in about football as our biggest global sport, our biggest global culture industry, is that it, it's a microcosm, that it it mirrors uh, the shifting values of us as a globalized society at a particular moment in history. And so as this unfolded back in April of 2021, um, 
I was sitting back watching with a million questions, not just about what this says for the sport and the future of the sport, but what this says for us as a society. There are big questions bubbling underneath the 96 tense hours of this thriller. Um, you know, can culture be privatized? Can it be owned? Who should be the leading voice writing the future of the sport? How do you govern culture? As soccer is in many ways a mirror to society, as it happened, many people just said, well, this is big business. This happens in many other industries. What's the big deal? As you went through all of the interviews, did you did you hear and sense that sentiment? Yeah, what's interesting, as an American who is a soccer fan, a football fan, and played soccer, you know, that is a much more frequent first response on this side of the pond than it is in Europe. And so one of our tasks in making the series was to explain to uh, North American audience just how important the roots, the history of the pyramid system are, this meritocracy, and why this proposal was such a threat to values that the fan in Europe holds so dear. You don't need to explain any of that to somebody who grew up with the sport in Europe. To them, the idea that there would be any amount of closing of a league is sacrilege. And to a US fan, the default of, well, it's a business and the fan is the customer. So what's the big deal is the default. And so translating the different approaches, the differences in our, our sports models, the way our leagues work in the US versus the way that leagues uh, in, in Europe work is a fundamental task just to launch into the story in episode one. Um, and it's fascinating how differently we think of the role of the fan in these two different continents. You said it there, episode one, this is not just a documentary, it's a docu-series. And we're seeing a shift in terms of the way these stories are told. I wonder what that tells us. Is it becoming more prevalent because of data consumption habits or the decline of importance of theatrical releases or just more real estate and more canvas for storytellers like you to tell stories. Why do you think this was the best approach for this uh, project and many projects that we're seeing that are similar? It's a hugely complex story. It's multi-protagonist and it uh, unfolds like a real-time thriller with a ticking talk countdown uh, across four days to a climactic event on Tuesday, the 20th of April, 2021, where at the UEFA Congress, which is this annual State of the Union conference, we are going to find out whether or not the Super League uh, dies and there's, um, and there's a, a nail in the coffin or whether it has an open road ahead of it. And so we approached it, you know, with the genre elements that make for a great thriller the, the the tension of those 96 sleepless hours and in order to give each stakeholder group sufficient time and space to make their argument persuasive it felt like the four-hour format was fitting um apple was very uh adamant from the get-go that it should be as long as it wants to be, that we need to 
dictate the length of the series based on what the content's needs were. And when we tried this structure of having one episode per day in this very dramatic four-day period, it worked. And it allowed us enough real estate to dive into some pretty deep, complex, layered understandings of a $40 billion a year industry. On the one hand, we're lifting the hood and looking at how the machinery works um, in big business and big power circles with all these various different groups vying for control. And on the other hand, we're telling a character-driven story that focuses on allegiance shifts and betrayals and alliances that are created as a result of leaked documents and secret plotting and high stakes gambles. So to juggle all of these different narrative elements, um, it felt like the right format. And I'm interested if you felt like it's the right time, because at the time, mainstream media said, well, the people won. And I felt, the, did they win for now or did they win totally? This is an ongoing conversation that right now is on pause. Do you see yourself having to start to tell this story all again? Why did you decide this was a good time uh, to end this chapter of the Super League conversation? And really, we had to dive in while this was an open story in order to get the access that we got, which was the priority. I mean, this was a chance for us to tell the story through the eyes of people that almost never publicly tell their story. And not only that, but to have them um, let us into their lives and and present themselves in ways that are accessible as human beings, you know, with, with real emotions at stake. Um, you know, the storytelling matters in the war for football. This is not just a battle being fought in the court of legal opinion. This is also um, taking place in the battleground of, of public opinion, the court of public opinion. And the way that one side tells the story does influence uh, who identifies with them and roots for them. Both sides would make the argument that they're doing what's best for the fan. One says they're doing it by protecting tradition. The other says they're doing it by paving a new path forward into the future that's adapting and evolving with the needs of the times. Um, you know, if you look back at previous innovations in the world of football, the Premier League in the early 90s was a very unpopular proposal that did shake the foundations of the way the, the sport was structured. And now flash forward a few decades and it's a national treasure in the UK. So there are arguments on either side and our goal um, with, with getting in there now while the, the terrain is, is still being dug um, and the trenches are still being deepened uh, was to be able to say to the viewer, you're going to really understand one side of this for 15, 20 minutes at a time. Then you're going to do a 180 and you're going to really understand the other side of it. And over the course of these four hours, we're just going to keep dripping in layers of complexity. Now, this is how decisions get made in uh, in in the worlds of, of power and influence. And it's a rare, it's a unique opportunity to see it at work. One of the things that we get the opportunity to learn is the true power of UEFA. Because the sports fans, when you think of the big industries and leagues, you think of certainly the NFL and FIFA and the IOC. And after watching this, I might argue that UEFA is more powerful than all of them. 
how big a part of that education was the storytelling for you? UEFA runs the biggest sporting event in the world. And every single year, the Champions League is bringing in billions of dollars. UEFA runs other competitions. Their gross revenue on an annual basis exceeds $6 billion some years. Uh, we in the United States think of the World Cup as the biggest sporting event in the world. Uh, but that happens once every four years. Uh, the stat at the beginning of the show says that more people tune into the UEFA Champions League final than watch the NBA finals, the Super Bowl, and the World Series combined. So we're talking about a institution, a governing body that moves billions of dollars and billions of people. Um, the, the repercussions of that extend far beyond sport into all elements of society, we were, um, you know, very gracious. Very, we we were very lucky that we had access to the inner workings of UEFA during the time that we were making this, um, and it was an interesting moment because they're being accused by the architects of the Super League of being a monopoly, of having conflicts of interest. They're both organizing these big competitions, managing how the money gets dispersed from these big competitions. And they're the police, they're the judiciary, right? The regulator. So they're making the rules. And that means, according to the Super League architects, that if they don't like what you're saying or what you're doing, they can punish you. They can fine you. They can ban you from the world's biggest competition. You would lose hundreds of millions of dollars as a club if you're not a part of the Champions League in any given season. And the the accusation that's playing out in the court, uh, the European Court of Justice right now, is that that is not a fair way to operate a transnational business. So we had an opportunity to hear the arguments on all sides of that accusation. We're seeing it with Live Golf and also you know the shift of power and Power Five conferences in the NCAA. Where you know not everyone loves how competition is formed, given all that is at stake. How did you get people to give you access to come on camera? And and how many people did you interview in the making of the series? We interviewed over thirty people from I would argue every perspective on this industry um, from Middle Eastern. Um, shakes and tycoons to, um, you know, the the billionaire owners of clubs to the governing bodies to the fan groups and the activists leading them. And, uh, you know, there was a very uh, different set of opinions about whether this was a victory for the fans and for football versus whether this was just uh, a return to a set of challenges that eventually are going to come to ahead regardless. But one thing that everybody agreed on is that there is another crisis on the horizon, that the problems that football faces are not resolved. That, you know, as uh, Anas Ligari, um, who works with Florentino Perez and is the general secretary of the Super League, says, there are too many cracks in the foundation. This edifice can't stay erect. And it it, it is likely that you will see some of these ideas, um, some of these solutions, some of these problems rear their head in the future. I think it's going to be a turbulent set of months and years ahead for the world's biggest sport. And I, for one, am very intrigued to see that play out. I, not for one, represent many and saying I'm very intrigued to see what you're fascinated in next and what 
sports character study, uh, you'll look to examine what can we expect in the future from uh, All Rise Films and yourself. We're doing a range of things that sort of the covers sport, crime, music. Um, if this story takes off and has an interesting evolution in a surprising way, maybe there's an extension to the war for football. Um, so uh, we we watch it all and and are trying to keep our finger on the pulse. I really appreciate that, Donovan. Well, I can't wait to see it. Can't wait for others to see this. Appreciate you taking the time and congrats on another really compelling piece of work. Uh, thanks so much, man. Thanks to Jeff in that four-part documentary series about the past, present, and future of European football and how it collides with our greater culture is on Apple TV+. Plus Right now, I know I gave you a lot of homework, but all of that is worth watching. One of the reasons why I love this platform is this show was we can talk about the art, the craft of the stories that are told around the stories in sports. We'll take a break. From all that, I know you've got a bunch in the queue right now. After the break, more going deep. My name is Lucille Bryan. I'm Clifton Bryan. My grandson is a show. And I'm so happy that you are listening to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. I'm so glad that you had the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Grandma and Granddad. We are back on the Going Deep podcast. And I had another conversation that I think was really important that bears hearing on this podcast. And that's one with Mallory Talker, who is a Canadian artist. Her handle online is at me the North. She's someone who, as you're about to hear, found her way in sport through art. It was somewhat therapy for her and it has fortified her love for basketball and really for the Toronto Raptors and the WNBA. And as we highlight strong women in sports. It's also important to recognize and celebrate the fact that those roles aren't just on the field or on the ice. They're in the press box, and they could also be in the design studio as well. My time going deep and learning from the story of Mallory Talker is up next. What do you love most about basketball? Oh, my gosh. I think it... The thing that I love most about basketball is it transcends from the court. So it's not only like a fast-paced game that's super active, and I think there's like a lot of poetry that the players can do with their bodies within the game, but I think that like off the court as well, it's so immersed with culture and music and fashion that I think no other sport really is able to do. What was your upbringing like? Um, good question. It, my upbringing, well, I grew up in Winnipeg and being one of four kids um, of a Mormon family, I went to church a lot, I played games, I played soccer, I danced, um, but mostly, like, I was a super girly kid, if you would say that, and I loved just, like, sitting in front of the TV and watching fashion television all day. What was your relationship like with sport when you were young? Um, I didn't have the 
best, well, I had a really good relationship with movement, I would say. I loved being active um, and getting out and like riding my bike and all that kind of stuff. But then as I grew older and got into high school, um, I shied away from it and just became a spectator of sport because there was a lot of like bad stigma, especially at my age, where if you played sports, you would either be like considered butch or there was like this stigma that you'd be gay if you were a female playing sport. So like I was scared to kind of disrupt my identity. And so I unfortunately like shied away from it as I got older. What scared you about it? Um, I think growing up in like a really religious household and having this impression of what um, it was to be a female, I didn't know, especially like where I stood or kind of, I was still figuring out my identity and I didn't want other people to choose those things for me. Tell me a bit about the Slam Dunk Project. So when I was in university, I was making a lot of work about sport and it, I don't know, I would say it kind of sucked. Like it was very baseline, it was basic. I just did stuff about basketball that nobody could really relate to. I found I didn't really f have my people in university that liked sport. Now I think it's a very different world having Instagram and knowing that other people make art about sport. Um, but I, I don't know, I just didn't find that art school was the place for me. And so I wanted to quit, I wanted to drop out. Um, and my professor said, like, if you could do anything other than art, what would you do? Um, and I wanted to slam dunk. I loved basketball. I don't know if that's the easy answer. But um, as I was training, I would get a lot of, like, really negative feedback, especially from adults saying, um, like, You're, it's not going to happen. You're white and you're a female. And so that kind of shook my world. I started looking into women's athletes that could dunk. I remember like having Lisa Leslie and Candace Parker and Brittany Griner like up on my wall in my studio thinking like, I can do this, this is, f this is real. Um, and through that, I started going to schools and talking about, um, like, my goals with younger children and even in high school and talking about these themes of race and gender really opened up more um, important issues that exist within basketball that aren't surface level. Um, and gave also entry points for other people to, if they didn't like sport, to actually engage with conversations and engage in my work um, as opposed to before. How do your personal experiences inform the way you are as a teacher? I 
like to approach teaching as a way to explore identity and explore how things work or how things feel. I think I'm really lucky to be able to work in an art room where I can really let students um, explore who they are and have time to do that. I don't think that a lot of us do take the time. Um, yeah. How do your profession as a teacher and your passion for art collide? I think I was really hesitant in the beginning when I started teaching to let them ex exist together. Um, it wasn't until I started teaching at Norwell in Palm Palmerston that I found ways to include my love and passion for the arts with teaching. Um, I thought teaching was my day job and like art was my night job. And so I was teaching students that had special needs and we would go to the Special Olympics every year for basketball. And when we were on the community court, we, they actually were like, we need to paint some lines on this. And that's when I was like, we need to paint the whole thing. Like, let's do the whole thing. And that project um, with working in the paint and like merging art and sport and my love uh, for both as well as being a teacher was the first time I was able to be like, oh my gosh, like this all makes sense. This works together. And so from there, I've tried to do even small projects that have been able to connect all of my passions um, and also help students explore those things too. Like art doesn't just exist within school walls. How has art helped you? I think art has been a big like mental health piece for me. Um, growing up and not really knowing where I fit within um, my identity or um, even fit within like the art world and sports and all of that. Um, art's been therapy. But I would say that just as much as that, like I think that movement has also been my therapy. So when I was in school for art, I was really anxious. I didn't know um, like where I was going with it. And so I would run a lot. And so I think both of them combined is what helps me, it's what makes my best day, art and movement. This is a good interview subject. My next question was how has running helped you, but you answered that, so thank you. <laughs> um, the Raptors. Yes. What do they mean to you? I think everything. So growing up in Winnipeg, I remember my dad brought me to my first Raptors game, and at the time, like, I loved hockey. Hockey was my thing. I loved the Maple Leafs. I actually proposed to Thomas Caverlet. How'd that go? Oh, he, I think it wasn't big no. <laughs> no, he put me, side story, they, I, like, wore my mom's wedding veil and his jersey. They put me on the Jumbotron. It was at an open practice. All the Leafs were, like, banging their sticks. Um... They put his big rosy cheeks on the jumbotron and 
Ty Domi after on the news told them to not let me in the building anymore. Sorry, you were how old when this happened? Oh my gosh, I think I was like 16. But okay, so when I first moved to Mississauga, my dad got tickets to a Toronto Raptors game. It was like the last game before um, the championship. And so it was the first time like I, there wasn't this glass divide between myself as a spectator and the athletes and just the vibes of everything and being in the stadium was incredible. And then there was this wave that went around like six or seven times. And I thought, this is my space. Like, this is so magical. And since then, I think the Raptors have been like my go-to team. They have just been like everything. I even have a Raptor claw tattooed on my hand. That's not the only basketball-inspired art you have on your body. It's true. So I do have a black mamba. I got this um, just after Kobe died as my, like, okay, I'm going to work hard and do hard things and not quit, so. Your own art mamba mentality? Yeah, it's my mamba mentality. Describe your art. Um, I think... The way that I like to approach art is through quiet moments. I think that a lot of especially sports art is really loud and graphic and bold and sexy. And I don't, like, I'm also attracted to all of those things. But when I approach stuff that I'm making, I like to include the quiet moments, the calm moments, the more poetic and feminine aspects um, that I feel that are kind of lacking in the sports world. I always, like, in my mind, equate it to the runner's high where you're working hard and you're running and then there's this moment of, like, silence and this moment where you're kind of outside of your body. And I like to make stuff that encaptures those kinds of things within sport that's not in your face so like in flow state yeah yeah for sure that's a good way of putting it why do you do the art that you do Uh, i think that it's missing i think that as a female athlete i just i okay i remember growing up and the only female athlete that i knew was Anna Kornikova, and it was only because she was in an Enrique Iglesias video with, like, half her clothes on. So I love seeing more female athletes becoming household names, that there's more viewership of female athletes. I love the fact that, like, my daughter now can grow up and know that, like, you can be a female athlete and you can have a career Um, out of it and I think with art I want to help give voice to the female side of things um, and give that femininity and be able to like support female athletes and um, like women run organizations and centers so that 
there's some voice in it. Like I could name off so many people that have worked for the NBA in doing art and like, I wanna work with the WNBA. Like let's put them front and center. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to like, favorite, share, subscribe. As I mentioned, there's some recent episodes that we're really proud of. Certainly our IWD episode, our Creed 3 episode. But we've got some good stuff coming in recent weeks, so stay tuned. But if there's something you want to hear about, something you would like us to speak on, something you want answers around, let us know. We do this as a service for you. So on behalf of myself and show, thanks for listening.